Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed all right val and i are looking at each other going which show number is this here all right anyway good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday april 27th 2012 this week episode i think 245 comes to you from (laughs) studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes the z-man is out on the left coast for the day. We won't have him today. Assisting, however, at the controls, as always, is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hello, happy Friday. And, of course, joining us by phone, but not only as our technical director this week, will be our guest, Dr. Dietrich Wow. This week's segments, we're going to do the Science of Indoor Environmental Quality Part 2 with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. The show's been designed to assist with people taking indoor environmental quality consulting and contracting courses, and uh, we're going to use it as a prep, kind of a prerequisite for some of the indoor environmental quality courses we do, especially the indoor environmentalist. Anyway, at halftime, we've got, he's back, it's been a while, Glenn Fellman. IE Connections, What's News? We'll go back to the second half with Dr. Wow, and of course, we'll finish with the roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean c-l-e-a-n-f-a-x.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of ieq radio when you inquire about their services and products okay to listen live follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show or of course the button on the iaqradio.com website that says the same thing you can also stream past shows directly from our website homepage 
or download the show by going to the iaqradio.com website and follow the link that says go to the show. Right-click on the download button and save it to your favorite MP3 player. And, of course, you can get the show from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits for IICRC and ACAC and the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out of quiz. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, I'm going to turn it over to myself, I guess, for this week's trivia question, Val. Since the Z-Man's out this week, I'm taking control of the trivia question here. We're going to do an audio trivia question, and then we're going to have Dr. Wilde do his own trivia question. But uh, let's start with the audio trivia question. The, the answer I'm looking for is, who was the person who gave this quote during an IAQ radio episode? Cormesis probably goes into the range um, what Paracelsus said when, when he was um, getting involved in toxicology, and he's considered to be the, the godfather, the grandfather of toxicology. And what he said, and I may be ruining this, this quote, he said that um, all substances are poisons, and there are virtually no substances that are not poisons, and it is the dose that di- differentiates uh, remedy from poison. Okay, so again, let us know who that was, what show number, and you will be the winner of this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Let's go to Dr. Wow. He's got one for us, too. Hello, Dieter. Dieter, do we have you? Uh, Yes, I'm here. Okay, good. Do you have a trivia question for the listeners? Uh, Well, yeah. uh, We talked about it, and since Cliff is not in, uh, we have to come up with something, right? Yes, sir. All right. One of the most ferocious carnivores is the polar bear. I mean, they eat just about anything. There is one thing they don't eat, and those are penguins. Why is it that they don't eat penguins? Hmm. That's a good one, dear. I don't know. Well, we, oh, they eat everything else. We lost the connection to the server. Hopefully, we're right back up. All right. Can you still hear me, Dieter? Yes, I can. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. We had a little uh, miscue on our on our computer. Uh, here, if but... you want me to quote Parat, well, wait a second. Do I give away the answer here? <laughs> well, I don't know. No, let's look. Well, I can quote it completely, and I can give it to you. In German and in English. <laughs> okay. Give us... From 1564. Okay. What is that? Which in translation means all substances are poisons. There is none which is not a poison. The right dose differentiates a poison and a remedy, which is incredibly profound, considering that it was 1564 when he did that. 
That is amazing. Well, actually, a little bit earlier, fifteen forty-ish or so. What What do you think led him to that? I mean, any idea what led him to that conclusion well, to make that he statement? Paracelsus, yeah, he would have been a perfect indoor environmentalist. He was trained in medicine, in toxicology, in engineering, in math, and physics, and chemistry. I mean, he was just unbelievable, that guy. And he started, uh, there were rumors that certain things are poisonous, so to speak, and put poisonous into triple quotation marks. If we go back to the quote, everything is a poison. If you drink too much distilled water, you are dead. If you inhale too much oxygen, you are dead. We can get to that when we make it maybe to toxicology. But uh, he started... He started testing materials, probably on animals, like rats and mice, and I don't think they had guinea pigs over there. They had a ton of rats and mice, that's for sure. <laughs> and he did feeding studies, and they said, my God, they are all dead. I haven't found a substance yet that doesn't kill them. Wow. No. And he said, well, now let's lower the dose and see what happens. And that is... He, he was playing with something that was later on uh, uh, developed uh, uh, here in the United States at the University of Pittsburgh. It's the, the dose-response concept. Yeah, I eat strychnine or arsenic any old day. I have absolutely no problem with this if it is one milligram. Yeah, I eat it and nothing is going to happen to me. Needless to say, they are all, both of them are uh, uh, quite toxic materials, so to speak. And of course, if you increase the dose, you have various effects due to the dose, include, including to the high dose, which is going to kill you. And Paracelsus, he found that one out 500 years ago. And I said, hey, man, yeah, we got to look a little bit deeper into that. He didn't have the chemistry. He didn't have. I mean, he had knowledge of physics and chemistry, but, I mean, he didn't have the apparatus and the machines that we have today to measure these small quantities. But he thought of it, and he was just brilliant. Well, this was before they even had electric theater. I mean, can you imagine oh, what this guy oh, was... Oh, yeah, I mean, a long time. It's <laughs> a TV basically here for 100 years, right? Yeah, basically. I mean, maybe more than that. I mean, but, but maybe you know, a little bit longer, 120 or it's so. It's certainly yeah. not 500 years, which is, I think, where we're at. Well, about 450 years ago, as I understand it, is uh, you know what we're talking about. That's amazing uh, that you know back then someone was you know wise enough to to figure that out. Now. Before we go off toxicology, in fact, you know, hey, it's a freestyle show. We can go any way we want here, Dieter. But let me let me ask you to back up for just a moment. I think one oh, of the sure, well, one of the statements I've heard you make before, and and I don't know that all of our listeners have, is that too much of anything is a poison. And and you mentioned water. What happens yes. when people drink too much water, and what happens that makes it a poison? Well. Here is, uh, it's, it's, it's very simple, and you hear this usually during the summer times, when little kids have drinking uh, combats, uh, they say, say, who can drink more water, you or I? And the problem is that you can drink 
water faster than your kidneys can eliminate it. And there is a backup, and that will kill you. And you hear about that. It's in the news. I mean, we're not going to kill 100,000 of them, but you hear it in the news. Oh, a couple of boys at uh, a drinking contest, and one of them died. Yeah, that's so that can be double distilled water. It's the, 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 the kidney just can't get rid of it. So the fact that you can't eliminate it as quick as, as you can drink it just leads to an overload in the kidney or in the... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, yes. Interesting. Now, now yeah. you also mentioned, um, you know, if I had a milligram of arsenic or, or strychnine. Give me I that. eat that one right now, no problem. Give us a, a, a visual. What What's a milligram look like? Well, uh, a milligram is a hundredth of a gram. So... And let's say basically, I mean, in round numbers, I know it's not 100% correct, but if you have a tablet of, uh, of uh, aspirin or, or, or Tylenol, and you cut that into 100 uh, pieces, one of those is about one milligram. And I say about, it's, yeah, it depends how you start. If the Tylenol is one gram and you cut it into 100 pieces, well, then you have a, a one milligram. And... That's a common measurement in any type of, of science, but um, very common in sampling and evaluation of, of chemicals. And, and can you talk a little bit about that? So I know we talked. Oh, sure. Oh, go ahead. Sure. Absolutely. Many of those chemicals and vapor, or let's say all of them are chemicals. Yeah, iron is a chemical. Uh, so is benzene. Uh, any of these chemicals uh, are pretty nasty to the human body at small doses. In other words, we don't do it in grams or in ounces. We found out that you know, a hundredth of an ounce, a thousand of an ounce can be terrible to the human body. So... Uh, the International Society has decided on going into milligrams. Uh, uh, that is the hundredth of a gram. And then there's even a microgram, which is a millionth of a, uh, a gram. But we express these concentrations in the air in milligrams per cubic meter of air. And in round numbers and among friends, a cubic meter is about a cubic yard. I know it's a little bit smaller. Who cares? That is, yeah, uh, uh, one yard by one yard by one yard is kind of like one meter by one meter by one meter. I know it's a little bit smaller, but we are not talking about the decimal point. We're going to talk, yeah, uh, 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 to, to get a feel for what we are talking about. Now, you mentioned something, and I'd like you to come back to this just a moment. You, you mentioned that, you know, a small amount can be very problematic if, if we ingest this or inhale it. And as I understand it, you know, going back to the quote we had for our uh, trivia question, it's the dose that makes the poison. Are there examples you can give us where a small amount won't do anything and a very large amount doesn't seem to do a whole lot, but it's something in between those two? Well, 
well, yes. I mean, you can go. Uh, you can. There, 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 there are quite a few materials like nuisance dust or something like that. Uh, you can be exposed to it. Uh, there, there, there is. Uh, yeah, no lung damage. You may cough a little bit. You yeah, and um, and uh, spit something out perhaps, but it doesn't injure your lung. However, yeah, if you inhale asbestos fibers or or uh, uh, crystalline silica, yeah, there is a reaction with that material on the lung tissue. And yeah, yeah, there, there, there are other uh, uh, chemicals to which you can be exposed at relatively and relatively underlined and bolded and italicized um, at relatively high concentrations, and it doesn't really do a heck of a lot to you. Well, uh, um, carbon dioxide comes to mind, even yeah. Even a, a one shot of, of, of whiskey doesn't kill anybody unless you give it to a one-year-old, uh, a one-day-old. Hopefully nobody will do that. But so, yeah, yeah. so there, 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 there is a gradation from, from very low to high, yes. Now, what about, I, I had heard a, a story long ago about arsenic that, you know, if you, if, if you were trying to poison somebody with arsenic, I want to get this right here, dear, that, you know, you might not give them enough, it wouldn't bother them at all, a milligram. You might give them too much, and they might just throw up and, and you know, expel uh, it. Certainly, that is certainly possible. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the right dose will do it. In fact, we have very good, uh, interestingly, very good um, records uh, from the old days in Rome, when uh, uh, it was the, the, the poison of choice. And, uh, you know, you had to have a poison ring. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to know of how much to put in there if you wanted to kill somebody. And uh, that's certainly... So they, they, they learned by accident about the dose. I said, hey, this one, this one is the, the thing that kills... If you give him too much, he just throws up, and all that stuff that should be absorbed by the body is now down the drain or the street, for that matter. And uh, so, yeah, sure, that is that that is something to uh, think about. Yes, Dieter. While we're on toxicology, I think we ought to just run with this. I have a clip from an old show, and I'm going to give away. Well, let's do it this way. It's from episode 130. Dr. Charles Gilbert, he's an epidemiologist and toxicologist. I want to play this clip for you, and then I'd like to have you comment a little bit about toxicology. Sure, gladly. Toxicology is the, the, the study of uh, biological, chemical, and physical agents on, uh, let's call it, um, living systems. It can be bacteria, fungus, uh, it can be... Um, um, amoeba. It also can be um, worms. <laughs> it can be insects. Um, and any impact that a biological, chemical, or physical agent has on any sort of living system uh, can be classified in the area of toxicology. My, the particular area that, that I am most fond of and I have focused in on is human toxicology. 
Now, Dieter, I know you've done a lot of toxicology over the years, and I'm just curious, um, and I'd like you to tell the listeners a little bit about what you did at the University of Pittsburgh when it comes to these types of experiments, but I'm curious, did you ever look at, I know you've done guinea pigs and, and um, rats, and I'm not sure if you ever did any monkey-type uh, studies, but did you ever oh, we do didn't any, do monkeys, but mice, yeah. How about worms and things like that he was talking about? Have you ever seen or heard of any experiments like that with um, other uh, organisms? Uh, no, I have not. We certainly exposed animals uh, to vapors and particulates. Uh, we did quite a few studies. We did the original study, I mentioned that last week, on formaldehyde. Uh, Greg Barry uh, uh, did that one with Dr. Allery. And uh, I worked with Dr. Allery in, 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 in that, his laboratory. I was in charge of generating the dust that uh, was inhaled by test animals, in this particular instance, guinea pigs, uh, which were exposed to cotton dust. There is a disease, it's called brucinosis, uh, is a, a, a disease uh, which you get after you inhale cotton dust. Uh, when cotton is uh, carded and processed, later on when it's spun, apparently the active ingredients are gone and it has nothing to do with fibers the fibers are large enough that they cannot be inhaled so there is other stuff on there and um, uh, we tried to figure out how much is there uh, were there bacteria yes were there mold spores yes uh, were there other uh, active materials and uh, uh, Joe, you know about it. Are there active materials, plant uh, active materials uh, uh, like pollens? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, when you get exposed to it, uh, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but when you're a cotton worker and you do and get exposed to that for years, there is a disease called brucinosis. Uh, which has an effect on the lung, and you have breathing difficulties. So they have... Uh, we studied that. I studied uh, uh, isocyanates. Uh, the isocyanates are the precursors of polyurethane. Uh, I was interested in that because I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation, which basically developed, invented, and marketed polyisocyanates for polyurethane uh, uh, coatings and others. In fact, we get to that uh, uh, maybe later on. So uh, we did uh, quite, a, and uh, we did warfarin, uh, 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 sulfur dioxide, uh, 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 hydrogen chloride. I mean, you you name it. Uh, uh, we we probably tested during my time when I was associated with the Graduate School of Public Health. I would say several hundred chemicals of various types. I usually was the one in charge when it came to particulate matter. Now, Dieter, when you were doing this, I, you were trying to, you were doing toxicology, you were trying to establish a dose-response relationship. Was that a part of the goal of these experiments? If you, yes, 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 and yes. If you don't have a dose-response 
relationship, you virtually have nothing. And that has to be established. And interestingly, we did this for all the chemicals which we were testing, from coal mine dust uh, to cotton dust. And we had low doses, medium doses, and high doses, and a bunch of them in between. And we, we could establish the dose-response relationship. If you can't do it, you don't have anything. Now, I'll give you a very simple example. You find a, a rat somewhere. You feed it a certain amount. And the rat, rat runs out of your house and kills over and is dead outside the house, hopefully. What did you learn? Well, the amount I fed him or her killed her. You, assert, I, would, I would assume that if you were to give double or triple or ten times the dose, it would kill her too. But what do you know about one-tenth, one-hundredth, or one-thousandth of the dose? Does that still have an effect? You didn't learn that from one experiment. You didn't do the dose-response curve or the dose-response relationship. And, and I'm sure many listeners have heard the term LD or LD50. Can you explain what that is for our listeners? Oh, sure. There is an LD50, there's an LC50, and at the University of Pittsburgh, we developed the RD50. But the, 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 the famous ones, in fact, one of my old professors, Henry Smith, Dr. Smith, he was one of the first ones uh, who did this uh, toxicology, quantitative uh, toxicology, and uh, they came up with an LD50. It is the lethal dose which kills 50% of the exposed animals. That in itself is kind of interesting because we, yeah, toxicologists don't go in the back alley and catch uh, dogs and cats or whatever, and rats or mice. They use inbred uh, uh, animals, which you get from a laboratory, and a good rat will cost you about $5, and a good mouse costs you about $1. Now, those are prices from about 20 years ago. They may have gone up. So even though you have an inbred population, still 50% die and 50% uh, uh, survive, and that is called the lethal dose, which kills 50%. The LC50 is the lethal concentration. That is the stuff. That, so the LD50 is basically by ingestion. You feed it to them. The LC50, the lethal concentration, which kills 50%, that's basically what we did at the University of Pittsburgh 95% of the time. Uh, it's the lethal concentration in air, which kills 50% of the exposed uh, population. So would it be fair to say... You can inject it, that is another LD50, and uh, you can rub it on the skin that is another LD50 skin and uh, uh, injected and so on. But basically, yeah, we, we, we don't have two hours over here to go into that, but that's basically what it is. Well, that's what we want, is the, the foundational science behind right. indoor environmental quality. Would it be fair to say these are rats and mice with papers? 
Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> they do. So have just papers. like a dog is bred and, yes. and you get the, the papers from the kennel. They, they, they are bred by certain laboratories. Uh, we had one in Pennsylvania. I forgot the name of it. Oh, my God, that's 20 years ago, 25 years ago. But there are several well-known laboratories uh, which breed uh, these animals, whether it is guinea pigs or mice or rats. And that's what comes to mind. There are not too many um, who uh, uh, breed uh, uh, monkeys for that research, and uh, there are several reasons for it. A good monkey costs you a couple of thousand dollars. Well, and that, that's, I think that's an interesting question, though, Dieter. Why do they use guinea pigs, mice, and rats? These are specially bred guinea pigs, mice, and rats. And I assume they have papers because you need a a consistent starting point, essentially, with, you know, with respect to their... You said it right there. Uh, okay. You have to have a consistent uh, starting point. You can't have a rat, one that is a month old, and the other one that is a year old, and another one that is two years old. You, 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 you said it perfectly, Joe, perfectly. Now... You want to have consistency in the population. That is one variation that you don't have to worry about. Okay, and I assume these guinea pigs, mice, and rats have similar um, oh, organs, you know, similar physical makeup to humans because ultimately you're looking for these LD and LCs for, for humans. Is that accurate? Boy, Joe, I know I didn't tell you all of that, but you asked the right <laughs> question. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Yes. How do you extrapolate from the mouse to man? Well, first of all, if I take, if I take a rat and a mouse and a guinea pig and a human, and I cut them open, I make an incision uh, down the tummy, and I open them up, the first thing you see is the liver which is huge, it's a huge organ over there. And if I don't give you the scale, I just take pictures of it so that they are all the same size. I tell you one thing, you will have a hard time telling a mouse from a rat, from a guinea pig and a human. They basically look all the same. Hmm. Now, uh, is any effect that I measure on a rat, on a mice or a guinea pig is that directly, can I directly translate that one to humans? The answer is, of course, no. If I wanted to study um, methyl alcohol in rats, methyl alcohol is the, the, the wood alcohol, the bad alcohol, uh, compared to ethyl alcohol, that's the booze, that's the whiskey, that's the good stuff. If I wanted to test methyl alcohol in rats, you're going to have a hard time finding an effect. You will have a whole population of rats completely drunk. Not one of them goes blind. Why? <laughs> they, can, they can metabolize, biotransform uh, that, grain, uh, that uh, wood alcohol, methyl alcohol, uh, without any problem whatsoever. So if they survive us, they can drink cheap alcohol in, uh, uh, and they don't have to pay the taxes on the methyl alcohol. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, if you want to study 
uh, scurvy on uh, uh, rats and see what happens if you don't give them uh, uh, vitamin C, uh, you, will, uh, you will not find any effects. They make their own vitamin C. They are way ahead of us. Hmm. Way ahead. If they survive us, man, they have all the tox data in the world. <laughs> <laughs> all they have to do is open the drawer. I'm saying this right now. I learned this one from Henry Smith. Now that they, have, they have a ball. I said, look at this, this story. This is all not good for us. <laughs> <laughs> Dieter, let me ask, before we go to halftime, I know Glenn Feldman's coming on. We have an IE connection. I'm, I'm, I'm looking news. forward to hear, Glenn. Before we do, though, I want you to just comment on, because I'd like to kind of round out this toxicology a little bit. Sure. We're using these guinea pigs, mice, and rats also because their lifespan is, is shorter, and so I, I assume you get more data more quickly than you would studying an animal with a longer lifespan. Is that somewhat accurate? Did you read last night a tox book or something no, like that? No, no, <laughs> Just You are good, my friend. <laughs> exactly right. If you get, hey, we have studies on cancer in humans. Average, what is the lifespan? 72 or something like that. You have to, yeah, if you are a researcher, you start today and there's no end to it. You, know, you are dead before you get the data. You are absolutely right. You know, the lifespan of a mouse or a rat is somewhere in the five-year range. So, in other words, they indeed will develop cancer in a much shorter time than we would. And therefore, we, uh, it, 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 it is a good uh, test animal to teach that. Now, I know there are a lot of people who will tell me, you have no right to kill a mouse or a rat or a guinea pig unless they are in, their, in your house, I guess. <laughs> and, um, but that is a question I don't really want to touch. It is done, and uh, it has been done, and it will be done in the future. And uh, I, I, I think I, I, I just throw out one of them over here. There are some companies that I, I, I read about here and there um, they make uh, makeup for little girls, uh, eyeliners, lipsticks, uh, rouge, and all of those other things. And they proudly uh, write on their products, this product was not tested by animals. They want to be say, hey, we were nice. We didn't kill, uh, kill uh, innocent little animals. And they, they die. Uh, I mean, they, they are not happy. You know, They will die a nasty death. But now you have a lipstick, an eyeliner, a rouge, whatever, and he said, was not tested on animals. Oh, we tested on your daughter. Isn't that a nice idea? Mm -hmm. Your daughter becomes a guinea pig, and if she has a terrible rash or whatever, uh, then we call you and we sue you. So this is, this is just one example. Is it good, bad, or indifferent? I'm just throwing it out as a thought. Now, Dieter, let me add one more. I, I would prefer something that was, yeah, I'm taking a drug over here, uh, uh, and that one was tested on animals, and there's the dose, in fact, I have the dose response curve in front of me. And uh, I am glad it was tested on animals, because my life depends on that stuff. Now, Dieter, let me just finalize this one real quick. When you go to 
and we talked about this just briefly before the show, and we've talked about the ACGIH and the threshold limit values and, you know, NIOSH's recommended exposure levels, et cetera, um, the OSHA permissible exposure limits. Are those also now based upon this toxicology, and where do you find that information that with respect to how they developed these limits or values? Joe, I don't. I didn't know you know all of that. I know you didn't re- rehearse. <laughs> I've been hanging around you a long time, Dieter. You asked the perfect questions over there. Yes, there are numbers. The numbers which are and let's let's go to ACGIH. They are really the forefront, and uh, ACG American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. They have been publishing the TLVs, the threshold limit values, for 60 years or something like this. OSHA used the TLVs of 1968 and put them into the 1970 Occupational Safety and Health Standard. And I'm on page, I mean, it's not even page one. It's on the front cover. Uh, These numbers, yes, they are based on toxicology and experience. People who use these materials in industry where they were made and they were used, they said, oh, my God, we use this one and that one. This is not right. We got to lower it. And here, here it is. It is important that the user of this book, Read the introduction to each section and be familiar. I highlighted that one, even though it is already highlighted. And be familiar with the documentation of the TLVs. Uh, If you look at the documentation of benzene, we know a lot about benzene. The uh, the, uh, documentation of benzene is probably 30 pages long. And we have, we have uh, uh, people from Russia, from Finland and Sweden and Australia and, I mean, uh, uh, Germany, United States, uh, who have experience with this stuff. And I said, yeah, I have, I have tested and I have seen workers who worked with this material. I just said benzene. There are like 600 of them over there. But many of these data are based on animal research data. Yes. Hmm. Fascinating, Dieter. Well, let's take our halftime break here, and we'll sure, be back absolutely. with the second half with our technical director, Dr. Yeah. Dietrich Wow, The Science of Indoor Environmental Quality, Part 2. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization 
dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We got a technical glitch. Let's see if we've got Glenn back. All right. Hopefully we didn't lose you, Glenn. We back? Hello, Glenn. Hello, I'm here. All right. Oh, my. Our computer just went bonkers on us here, but it's back. All right. Great, great. Glenn, what's news? Welcome back. I haven't talked to you in a while, by the way. I mean. I know. It's been too long. I've got it. We've got to get back on a regular schedule here well, because there's too many things happening. You were swamped in March, so, you know, we'll, we'll bring it back to regular now. What's news? Well, let me ask you this. Um. Uh, since I haven't been on in, in a while, are your listeners up to speed on the situation with hair braiders in Virginia? <laughs> no, actually, I have not brought that one up. Go for it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let everyone know. Uh, Governor McDonald uh, of Virginia had a, a, a plan to streamline government. It resulted in a bill that uh, was passed through the legislature and has become law. Effective July 1st, 2012, all hair braiders, people who braid hair in Virginia, no longer require a state license to braid hair. Oh, and also mold remediators and mold inspectors and interior designers also do not need to have licenses. Oh, boy. To do, nice to, to be lumped in. <clears throat> Anybody can do it now. So if you, ha- if you braid hair, rest assured, starting July... You can do it and not worry about the state coming after you because you don't have a license. Amazing. Same with mold. Amazing. Same with interior design. Well, I'll tell you, there's gonna, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not happy. I put a lot of time and money into getting approved. I didn't want to do it, but it was like, well, I have to. And now it's all gone, and they're not going to send me my money back, huh? They're not going to send you your money back. And I know dozens and dozens. I know I'm from Maryland, so I know a lot of local people. But dozens of, of Maryland and Virginia and D.C. contractors and consultants 
who jumped through huge hoops, uh, went through all the paperwork process, got licensed, um, and now they're being told that they're, you know, the license is, is, is no longer in effect in July. But, by the way, between now and July, you actually have to still adhere to the license and all of its requirements and all of its paperwork, even though the law is going away. It's ridiculous, and it's unfair to business. It's unfair to taxpayers. You know, to to, to make a, a law one one year and then take it away the next year is just, in my opinion, is a big waste of time and money. And and if I was a Virginia resident, I'd be infuriated because of the process, not not just because of the law being uh, taken away. Yeah, I'm not. I was never a big fan of the licensing to start with. I didn't think the law was all that. It was okay. I mean, it did some good things, but you know. This is just even more crazy. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Please, let's <laughs> right. move to another subject. That one just infuriates me at times. Uh, me too. All right, moving on. Uh, did you know, and I'm sure you did, that EPA is really stepping up enforcement of the lead paint rules? You know, I've seen uh, a little, are... not much. What do you got? Well, I got some stuff happening. Not only is it happening um, on an increased level at EPA, it's happening more on a state level. Uh, Maryland, in fact, just put in a tough new law this month that extends greater protection to tenants in older residents. But EPA announced three enforcement action, actions uh, for violations of the Lead Renovation, Repair, and Painting Rule, otherwise known as RRP, and other lead rules. Now, the RRP rules require the use of lead safe work practices to ensure that common renovation activities, you know, like sanding, cutting, demolition, uh, things that could create a hazardous lead dust, that they have to be conducted properly by trained and certified contractors or individuals. The RRP rule uh, was finalized in 2008. It took effect uh, April of 2010, so it's been about uh, two years. So on March 21st of this year, uh, a fellow named Colin Wentworth, who is a rental property owner responsible for building operation and maintenance, well, he agreed to pay a $10,000 uh, fine to resolve violations of the RRP rule. The complaint alleged that Mr. Wentworth's workers violated the rule by improperly using power equipment to remove paint from the exterior surface of an apartment building he owns in Rockland, Maine. And the complaint also alleges that the workers had not received any training under the rule and that Mr. Wentworth had failed to apply for firm certification with the EPA. Now, if you know this rule, $10,000 is getting off lightly. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it, Joe, $35,000 or $37,000 a day per violation or something like that? Yeah, it's high. It's high. It's real high. So... Uh, but Mr. Wentworth is not off that easy, because while he's agreed to pay $10,000 to the EPA, the Maine Department of the Environment is doing its own investigation, and there could be some repercussions there. Uh, next case, uh, just on March 20th, 2012, Valiant Home Remodelers, based out of New Jersey, they're a window and siding company, they agreed to pay $1,500 to resolve violations for failing to follow the RRP rule during a window and siding replacement project at a home in Edison, New Jersey. Hmm. And then uh, a little bit before that, on February 21st of this year, Johnson Sash and Door, it's a home repair company located in Omaha, Nebraska, they agreed to pay a $5,558 penalty for failing to provide the owners or occupants of housings built prior to 1978 with an EPA-approved lead hazard information pamphlet. So uh, these complaints are, are coming in. They are being um, 
enforced, and uh, the penalties that are being imposed currently are not nearly what they could be. I suppose that may change. But that's just the federal stuff. Uh, the, the state stuff is, is, is even more heated up. And I'm going to stop here and just let you know that you can read all about it in the May edition of Indoor Environment Connections. It comes out next week online at www.ieconnections.com and then in print about a week after that. So uh, there's three, uh, three or four-page article on that covering a lot of the state activity as well. So look for that next week online and uh, in your mailbox after, after that. Next up, uh, this is a story I wanted to bring into today's uh, show because I, I was really interested to hear uh, how Dr. Weil was going to respond to this. I don't know if he's aware of it or not, but uh, there's some big stuff going on in the way of education funding for uh, related to workplace safety. In fact, AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, is asking a congressional committee to reconsider some planned budget cuts. Uh, the group has submitted official comments to the House Committee on Appropriations. Well, actually, it's the Subcommittee on Labor, Health, and Human Services, blah, 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 uh, regarding the fiscal year 2013 federal budget as it pertains to, to funding for, and we get these right, for the NIOSH Education and Research Centers, that's ERCs, mm-hmm. and the Agricultural, Forestry, Forestry, and Fishing, that's AAF, sector of the NIOSH National Occupational Research Agenda. Now you're probably wondering, what are these things? These are groups that have typically millions and millions of dollars to help educate um, all kinds of people about safety in the workplace. AIHA is urging the committee to provide the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health with funding in fiscal 2013 comparable to what it had in fiscal 2012. The president has proposed in his 2013 budget the elimination of uh, all federal funds, $24 million for the NIOSH ERC's program and $20 million for the AFF program. They would essentially no longer exist. You know, NIOSH is the federal agency responsible for conducting research and making recommendations for the prevention of work-related disease and injury and leading the effort to ensure that there are you know, occupational safety and health professionals trained to protect America's workers. And as AIH said, elimination of the funding for the ERCs and the AAF program will have a strongly negative impact on worker occupational safety and health for years to come as fewer and fewer individuals will have access to the specialized training. It's a big blow to uh, occupational safety and health. And you want to read more about it, go to the AIHA website. It's uh, AIHA.org. Uh, look in their government affairs section. You'll find your way there, and you can read their full position statement and find out exactly what President Obama has proposed to take out of NIOSH's budget for next year. Hmm. Well, the budget's getting whacked all over the place, but you know, it's there's I guess there's always two sides on that one. Let's see if uh, Dr. Wild. We have. Oh, we got to get him back on the line. Was that? Did you have another one, Glenn, or is that? I got I got a couple little ones. Okay, a couple little ones. Uh, just real quick, just uh, keep your eye out on this. ASHRAE is looking at uh, changes to standard 62.2, ventilation and acceptable indoor air quality in low-rise residential buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's coming out for a, a peer review, so you can go to ASHRAE.org, and you can read the five proposed addenda to ASHRAE 62.2. Uh, keep your eye on the ones for combustion. They are really designed for consumer safety, and there are some really good um, uh, revisions in there. <coughs> 
A couple others. Uh, I wanted to draw everyone's attention to something the Restoration Industry Association did. Um, Joe, you know Marty King, right? Well, I know we've had him on the show. Of course. Marty King is a a legend in the restoration industry and has been a faithful uh, advocate, educator, spokesperson for the Restoration Industry Association for since before I was born, quite frankly. And um, there's a great tribute to him on YouTube that RIA put together. If you go on YouTube and you search under, you put Marty, M-A-R-T-Y, Marty King Tribute, uh, it's about an eight-minute video, and if you're a certified restorer or if you ever took a course with Marty King, you'll you'll really enjoy this. A lot of testimonials and a nice job by RIA. Great. All right. Well, lastly, want to just do a couple shameless plugs. Uh, <laughs> there's some huge education coming out of the Indoor Air Quality Association. There are indoor environmentalist courses June uh, 4th uh, through the 8th in Kansas City. Uh, they happen again in August, uh, 13th through the 17th in Pennsylvania. There's mold radiation supervisor courses happening just about every month. Actually, actually every month, May through November. Uh, you can learn all about these as well as mold remediation worker courses all year long at iaqtraining.com. <laughs> now, these are courses that are really designed to, as you know, Joe, because you, you, you are the instructor on many of these courses, these are courses that are really designed to train people how to do something hands-on, uh, really, really good uh, programs that get you out in the field with a, a, a you know, level of proficiency that you didn't have before the course. Now, IAQA has some other things going on as well. We, uh, IAQA is running a seminar series. Uh, these are one-day events, uh, more like continuing education, but really good for people who want to delve into some other types of topics. So you can check those out at iaqaseminars.org. And there's these other events happening all over the country every month. Um, So a lot of education coming out of the Indoor Air Quality Association, a bunch of it done with the IAQ Training Institute. We thank you for that and uh, and some other super events as well. That wraps it up for me, Joe. All right. Thank you, Glenn. And and one of the instructors we've got on the line, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, any comments on the NIOSH cuts? Were you familiar with that program and all the... Uh, yeah, I well, <laughs> I you may know. I don't think you know that, but I was a recipient of a scholarship when I uh, was a doctoral student at the University of Pittsburgh. And I mean, this is—it's almost tragic. We had twelve scholarships, and we only could five uh, find five guys. Wow! Unbelievable. Uh, anyway, uh, 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 so. <laughs> Yeah, it's the budget cut. Uh, I think they have the same problem that everybody else has in the country. If you don't have any money, you can't spend it, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we are certainly it's unbelievable. In we're in that. But boat. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear that I can go now to Virginia and braid hair down there, and I don't need a, a Pennsylvania license here in uh, in, uh, in in Pennsylvania. Uh, so, Hallelujah, Dieter. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, let me uh, let me ask you a question, Dieter. On this, we had we had gone into some, you know, some essentials of of science for indoor environmental quality, and one of the things we missed last I- week. Go ahead. 
um, we were talking about air and, and air motion and the mechanisms there of air movement. And, and in the training courses we do, we talk about wind being a big, you know, obviously a big mechanism of, of movement for, for air. And of course, there's stack effect and mechanical pressurization. And I wanted you to just kind of touch on each of those and, and maybe we could do like a description if you would. I remember you talking about air movement and against the side of a building and you were doing particle counting, I believe in one of the university buildings and how much the, the particles or how easily some of these very small particles got through whatever the building enclosure was and, and how quickly you were able to count those when they went up outside, they basically went up inside. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, that that when I that I did that at at the at the uh, oh what is it above the ceiling of the auditorium, which has no windows, no open, uh, uh, no opening to the outside whatsoever. And I remember when I looked at the data, I was I was a greenhorn. I didn't know what the heck was going to happen. And I couldn't believe it. We had samplers on the inside of a brick wall. Now, about, I would say, not even 50 yards, maybe. Well, you know it. That's the old, uh, across the street from the old children's hospital. Mm-hmm. There's Fourth Avenue with buses. And, and cars going, yeah, 24 hours a day. Uh, I couldn't believe the data. I knew the greenhorn I was. I knew that I wouldn't get anything. I said, hey, I'm behind the wall. What the heck? You know, <laughs> nothing is going to happen. It was just unbelievable. The first thing, <laughs> of course, there were two peaks. <laughs> Guess when? One in the morning and one in the afternoon. Why? because there was traffic. Now, this is 30-some years ago when cars spit out a little bit more carbon monoxide. That really hasn't been solved. I mean, and I don't really care about it, by the way, but they spit out more stuff out of the exhaust pipe than they do today. And it was just unbelievable to me that I found the carbon monoxide not at levels that would kill me. Of course, otherwise everybody on Forbes Avenue would be dead. And there was a slight shift. It took a little bit longer for the particulate matter, basically stuff that also comes from the exhaust pipe, from the buses, from the diesel engines, and just the street dirt that is re-entrained by the traffic where it goes up into the air again. I couldn't believe it, but it is just unbelievable. In other words, if if you have a house and there's traffic in front of your house, whatever the traffic generates, it's going to be in your house sooner or later, usually sooner. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going right through the, the brick wall? Is that what you're it telling me? It goes through the brick wall. It will not go through the window. Yeah, that is. And we, we, uh, so we have more stuff uh, uh, in the future, uh, a window is a zero perm permeability, zero permeability, the engineers call that a perm, of how much uh, t- uh, uh, molecular transfer goes through a barrier. Well, 
a window, there is nothing going through the window. But right next to the window, there are a thousand nooks and crannies, and there is a brick wall, and it comes through there, and the door and the window. Uh, uh, so it, uh, yeah, you, you, you can't escape it. It's impossible. So even if we had a good air barrier on there of some type, a, um, um, even a plastic um, you know, polyethylene barrier, I guess that would, that would help somewhat, but even well, then... Well, it would help somewhat, yes. But uh, it, it's one of those things. There are 10,000 other nooks and crannies where there is infiltration. And uh, Glenn mentioned that one. Um, with the ASHRAE standards, they are look. They have been tinkering with that standard for the last fifty years, and that has something to do with ventilation. And the problem, not the problem, the issue is there. Yeah, do we need ventilation in the house? Should we have it? Is it a good idea to bring in extra air and pressurize the house uh, with respect to the outside? In other words, now, if I have a little pressure on the inside, going to the outside, can something come in? Technically, no. Of course, a little bit will come in because there is a nook and cranny somewhere. But uh, that, is, that was the idea, that was the thinking behind uh, the guys uh, from Ashray. And they looked at it, I mean, they're looking at this for 40, 50 years. I'm well aware of it. And it is a difficult question to answer. There's no question about it. So one of the elements of airflow is, is the wind, obviously. Um, a second yeah. one is, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about stack effect and what stack effect is, and if you could give us a, a, a good visual uh, on the radio here, paint a visual for us as you're so good at doing. Sure. Well, yes, if you... We, and in fact, we all kind of know that and we experience that. You know when there is a wind, particularly in the winter, and you, Joe, you know that also. You're on top of a mountain, and when the wind blows, you know there is wind outside mm -hmm. because there are drafts in your house. That wind is impinging onto walls, the outside walls of a building, and there are nooks and crannies, and it comes through. It is unbelievable. You don't think it, but you notice it. I said, wow, it's all of a sudden, it doesn't, it's windy outside. I don't feel very comfortable over here. So, yes, the wind uh, can push air into the house, including all the contaminants which are there. In your case, Joe, up there, uh, you don't have a lot of contaminants. There is no industry around. You have some street dust, and you have, as you have noticed, you have a lot of pollens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of pollens, and, um, uh, of course, you don't measure the bacteria, and you don't measure uh, the mold spores, but they come in, uh, in too. The other one is the stack effect, and probably the best way to say that is if uh, I have, in fact, I'm looking at it, I have a fireplace in my room here, and from there to the top of the roof is a good, that is 10, 20, 25 or, or there, between 25 and 30 uh, uh, feet, 
and there is no fire in there right now. And in the winter, what do I do? I close the damper. Why? Because the warm air from my house, for which I paid, is going up the stack, which is venting by itself. No fan in there. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It goes out there. So that costs a ton of money to have that. That is the stack effect. And uh, so during the winter, when I don't use, when I do use it, I open it, believe me. And even then, I really don't get a lot of heat into the house. Remember, we talked about that last week. That is the radiant heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The front is nice and warm and your back is cold. Yep. Yep. Uh, but it looks very nice, and with a nice bottle of wine and a good-looking uh, young lady, it's a lot of fun <laughs> to watch the fire uh, uh, go. But anyway, um, me... so that is the stack effect, even if there is no fire in it. And, and that can be exaggerated, especially in, in commercial buildings, because of things oh like my you know, God. elevators. Yes. And uh... if you look, if you look at the Empire State Building. Or we have two big buildings in Pittsburgh. One is the U.S. Steel Building downtown. The other one is the Cathedral of Learning uh, of the University of Pittsburgh, which also has something like 60. So, I mean, it's not a small building. It has something like 60 stories or something like that. In the elevator shafts, uh, if you take the elevator, you will hear the howling of the wind particularly when you're going down because the stack effect, the air is one is going up, and you're going with the elevator in that elevator shaft down. So I mean, you literally, and, and you know that, I know you have been there. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the wind, the air is howling in there. And you feel it uh, not only, I mean, you feel it on your eardrums, not only because you go from up to low, and your eardrums are very sensitive to that. But there is also the pressure due to the wind and the stack effect. And what would it take to counteract that stack effect? Let's say you wanted to positively pressurize that building and not let that air come up out of that oh, top. Oh, small, a small little power plant outside the <laughs> building would be appropriate and huge <laughs> Maybe a little jet engine or something like that. Very difficult. I mean, you 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 don't do that with you know. I, it's 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 massive. It's incredible how much there is. Yes. Now let's say you were building a containment in a building like that. You were trying to set up a, a negative pressure containment to remove asbestos-containing materials. How much would you have to take into consideration the stack effect issues within that building, if at all? Uh, well, not all that much. If we're, if I were on the 50th floor and I do remediation of whatever, lead or asbestos or whatever, and I will build a containment, you know, now I'm not going up and down. Uh, so right up there, uh, since you don't go up or down and you are not in the middle of the air shaft, which is the elevator shaft, uh, I don't think it will hinder you too much, but still, you want to have a negative pressure on the inside. How do you get it? You have a fan with a motor, 
We call it a negative air machine. We call it, uh, there, there are several uh, 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 names for it, depending on who you are. Um, that fan and that box in the box is a motor and a fan. And that box is attached to the enclosure, your enclosure, which you have built with plastic, uh, like in, uh, in an abatement area for lead or asbestos, and you suck air out of there and you throw it to the outside after you filtered it. EPA insists on that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so right there, I don't think the stack effect will work significantly against you. But if you were doing remediation in that elevator shaft... Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, okay. Now you better take stack effect into consideration. Oh, you have to. And that would be... Well, if I had to do something in there, I would close that thing off in the area where I'm working. That there is no sta uh, stack effect. Uh, if you put a piece of plastic in there, that may fly away from you. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to use some uh, plywood or something along those lines to, to help. Yeah, plywood or concrete. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, dear, let me, that's the that, third. That, uh, would be, that would be a problem, yes. Now, that, that would be an example, the, the air filtration device being used as a negative air machine, the fan with the blower. Um, that would be an example of mechanically pressurizing or mechanically moving the air, just like an, a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system would. Co correct, yes. Okay. So the three mechanisms we discuss are just the wind, the uh, stack effect, and then mechanical pressurization issues all can have, uh, all can determine air movement. And then... The other thing I wanted to ask you about before we go, I know we're running a little low on time here. Is That's fine with me. I have no problem. Okay. When we're building these negative pressure containments, okay, and we're told that we need to keep it at a certain pressure differential, we measure the pressure on the outside versus the pressure on the, the, the difference between the inside and the outside. And we, we put these air filtration devices in and we pull air through typically a, a decontamination chamber or a flap of some kind. Right. When, when we pull that air that through. the incoming air. Right. And, and for every, I've always been told for every cubic foot of air we pull out, we've got to bring a cubic foot of air in. I think, as I understand it, it's how quickly and, and through what pathway we bring in that cubic foot of air that helps to determine the pressure differential between the two areas. Is that somewhat accurate? Uh, yes. And the one thing that I would like to add, whenever you do ventilation, whether it is inside a, con uh, a containment area or I ventilated uh, pigment plants and uh, paint plants where they have pigments, you always try to sweep from clean to dirty. That is the number one rule. Uh, I worked at a, uh, a, a paint plant, and uh, the, 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 um, the plant manager told me, said, look, this is a, 
this is a dirty place. There ain't nothing you can do about it. And I said, you want to make a small wager of $10 million? <laughs> and I know how to handle that problem. They brought in air uncontrolled all over the place, particularly over the area where they uh, stored the pigments. The pigments are of microscopic size. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So they were all over the place. Uh, they didn't care whether a forklift truck uh, put a hole into a, a bag and the bag was leaking all over the place. That wasn't. I said, hey, now, here we do it, and this is what I want you to uh, want you to do. This is, I think that is where you need to hire a consultant. I came from the outside. The place was a big stall. Everybody else knew it was a big stall. And, quote, you couldn't do nothing about it. That's what they told me. And I said, we will do this. I said, we have every bag in one of those paper drums. I mean, these are these thick paper drums. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are heavy. I mean, they are like a quarter inch or so in diameter. Like a big cardboard 55-gallon. keep that one over there. said, we're going to get a sweeper over in here, and we clean up that area. They, I worked with, and that was in, uh, in Kentucky. I forgot the name of the company. And I said, guys, I'm going to come back, and uh, you do, here is what we are going to do. And I came back, like, after three weeks, and I looked around, and I said, wow, you guys did a damn good job, but we have to do more. And the plan manager came, and I said, you were right. I didn't know it could be done. It's one of those things. So uh, that is education, and you and I are in education. You've got to open the people's eyes to it. And I said, here, this is what we have to do, and here is how we do the ventilation. We do the ventilation. We bring in makeup air. We have to bring in, if we exhaust air, we have to bring it in. But we have to bring it in intelligently, not through an open window and perhaps an open door, which is usually closed during the winter in this area over here and in Kentucky. So uh, uh, that's how, I mean, you have to do it intelligently, and you got to think a little bit. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention, we measure that pressure differential oftentimes in inches of water gauge, uh, sometimes in, in pascals. These are just different units of measurement. Can you talk to us a little bit about what an inch of water gauge is and maybe give us an example of, you know, what is one inch of water gauge pressure differential between one area and another, or a half an inch, or 0.02, which is two one-hundredths of an inch? Sure. An inch of water is an incredible, relatively speaking, an incredible uh, pressure differential in a building. And uh, to give you two examples, uh, one I heard about, I never, fortunately, I never measured it. The other one I did measure. I play tennis in a uh, bubble, and uh, that bubble is, I don't know how many tons that thing uh, uh, weighs. The bubble is over two tennis courts, so it is substantial, and there is a blower, and uh, that's why the thing, in fact, they are tearing it down right now because we are starting the summer season. <laughs> I should be playing tennis on May 2nd. Anyway, they are taking it down right now. I measured it over there, and I would <laughs> guess how many inches of water we need 
to keep that bubble uh, uh, inflated and up. Anybody has a guess? You got me on that would, one, dear. Would you, would you believe a half an inch of water is more than sufficient to hold it up? Hmm. It's incredible. You don't need you know, inches of mercury or something like that. The same thing is true, and people heard about it and seen it, but they never, they never ever measured it, and I have no intention of measuring it to measure the pressure differential from the eye of a, uh, a, a funnel cloud that goes somewhere in the Midwest uh, over a car. All of a sudden, that car is being lifted into the air. Wow, there must be a huge pressure drop. And then the funnel cloud goes a little bit further down the street, and there is a roof that flies away. And a little bit further down, a uh, what are they called? The 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 the, the mobile home. The trailer, yeah. The mobile home is lifted up and it falls apart. You know what the pressure uh, differential is between the inside and the outside? Again, approximately a half an inch. That is all. Wow. But if you put it instantaneously over a surface like a car or a roof. It does. We know what it does. It lifts the car and the roof is gone. It's incredible how, and therefore, uh, we measure um, uh, the, the, the pressure differential from the inside to an outside of a containment. We don't measure it in inches of water. What? We have 0.2 inches of water, something like that, right? 0.02, two one-hundredths. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 0.02. If you if you make it a little bit more, your containment will collapse on you. Yeah, you can. I've I've been you know point oh two to point oh seven. You know, you, sure. you get yeah. above point oh seven, it's tough to hold the the poly down yeah. and keep it from pulling off the walls. So seven one hundredths of an inch is pretty good pressure differential when you have things really well sealed up now i would imagine if you if you didn't have it all real well sealed up you wouldn't notice it as much obviously but again that goes back to that initial discussion of it's how quickly you bring that air in and how much you kind of throttle it down on the way in i guess yeah right well dieter I do appreciate you talking to us about these issues over the last two weeks. And um, for those of you that are interested in, in hearing the rest of the story, we'll be together again in June out in Kansas City doing the next indoor environmentalist course for the IAQA and IAQ Training Institute. And what we're trying to do is get some of the basic information out and available to people that can listen to it before they come to the course so we don't have to go into these uh Kind of uh, right. basics. Excellent of... idea. At least they have a background, yep. and you know, I you know I like teaching. I'm looking forward to come out there, and uh, uh, you know, all the topics are not all. Uh, many of the topics which we touched upon here, we do in detail over there, and uh, we. <laughs> Joe, we have enough material for another 10 shows. I know. We uh, we didn't quite get through what I thought, Dieter. But no, we, was... I know we didn't get to a bunch of things uh, we talked about last week, and we talked a little bit about toxicology and all of that. I think those are things you've got to learn 
or another guy. You got to get a feel about it and know what's going on. Yeah. Absolutely, and we don't have time during the class to go through these things. So I think it's great that we have it recorded. That, that's right. Make it available. That's right. If you don't understand toxicology, listen to this show before you come to the training because we're going to be talking about issues right. that, you know, that's the foundation of many of the issues we talk about. So uh, that's hey, if all materials were non toxic, we didn't need OSHA or the EPA. There you go. <laughs> we wouldn't worry <laughs> and, about indoor and, air quality. And, huh? and barely any, do- uh, uh, any toxicologist and barely any doctor. <laughs> there you go, Dieter. Well, thank you, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for joining us again this week on IAQ Radio. And uh, we really appreciate it, Dieter. Hey, thank you very much, Joe. And uh, you know I like doing this. And. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun, and that's, that's, I like it. Thanks again, dear. I'll talk to you soon. All sure, right. pleasure. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest this week, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Uh, thanks to Glenn Fellman for joining us with an IE Connections What's News update. A couple of interesting news stories. Of course, thanks to Roxy V for handling the controls. I didn't get you. I didn't let you get a word in edgewise. Nope. I'm sorry. I just realized That's that. That's okay. I have Next so week. much fun with you. <laughs> uh, and of course, most importantly, thanks to all of you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again for joining us this week. Come back next week. We've got. Bob Crow is coming to visit with us next week, a name many of you are familiar with in the indoor air quality world. And then the week after that, uh, we've got, oh, what do we got the week after that? Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to go into this discussion of heat a little bit with the drying and a little bit about whether air holds water, etc. with Mickey Lee. Anyway, come back and join us next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production.